Welcome back, dreamers, to another episode of the Dole Whip and Dreams podcast. I'd just like to take a chance to thank everyone because for the first time, we have hit the American charts on Apple Podcasts Performing Arts podcast list. It is an amazing honor, and you all are keeping us there literally every week, so we just cannot thank you enough. We have some really fun things coming up. This Saturday, Saturday, February the 8th, you can meet all of your friends from Dole Whips and Dreams and dreamers like you at the Magic Kingdom for the Dole Whip Social. We'll be meeting at 1 p.m. at the Aloha Isle refreshment booth for some Dole Whip and some selfies and some fun time. We'll then be doing the Tiki Room, Jungle Cruise, seeing the backside of water, getting some drinks with Trader Sam at 4.30, and then spending our evenings as we, anyone would at the Magic Kingdom. So we'd love to see you then. That's February 8th. Again, this social is not affiliated with Walt Disney World, Instagram, or anyone. It's just a bunch of us hanging out we really want to get to know you so you do need to have a day pass for the day or an annual pass but we hope to see you there and in march a round of applause everyone our first live show it'll be dolips and dreams live from swamp con at the university of florida it'll be march 14th or 15th so put them both on your calendar the best part is it is a free convention it's really awesome it happens every year and we hope to see you there and now here's our show Welcome back, dreamers. I have no way to lead in this guest other than she is one of the most monumental people I know who is more passionate about about this movie than I think I am, and this is one of my favorites. So there is no lead-in I could give, but I am so excited that we have Sarah Lyons on the show with us today. Sarah, welcome! Oh, thank you for having me! Of course. A little background. Sarah and I both are alum of the theater department at SUNY New Paltz in New Paltz, New York, where she was the first (laughs) kind soul that opened uh, very warmly up for me in my incoming class, and she and I were fast friends. Uh, Sarah's one of the most passionate people I know, and so I had to have her on the show. So, Sarah, what movie are we doing today? Uh, Obviously, Atlantis, the best of all of the Disney animated movies, if you ask me. And you did. So so here we are. I did ask you. I did give you the option. But I also said, I was like, Sarah, do you want to do Atlantis with me? And we'll get to why at the very end of the show. Because it's one of the most genius (laughs) pitches someone has ever given me without knowing that I loved a property before they gave me the pitch. Um, And so, (laughs) you know, this is you. This is the first movie uh, that we're doing on this season of the podcast that is in the post-Renaissance era of Disney animation. Um, So why don't Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about who you are first, um, what you're doing in life, and then why Atlantis means so much to you. Okay, so uh, I am living the same exact life that you knew me for in college, quite frankly. Very little has changed except for the setting. I am a theater artist and a historian, and uh, that has meant that I have settled quite nicely into a day job of dragging tourists around New York City, especially the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island, while uh, getting my writing portfolio together. Uh, Something that I haven't been able to talk to you about yet is I'm actually applying in the next month for a couple of dramaturgy master's programs to get a little deeper. Yeah, I had this whole talk with our professors, um, and they are very much throwing in with that. But uh, I have written a couple of plays that have been produced. I have one about Elizabeth Jackson Sands, who is the boss. she was a woman who was a gun runner during the revolution in my hometown and that has gotten a staged reading 
uh, I've been keeping as busy as I can between tour guiding and writing and the occasional acting gig. And, uh, all of this sits quite nicely with Atlantis, because Atlantis is one of those rare and beautiful recent history animated phantasmagoricals that Disney mm-hmm. has put out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something mm-hmm. that has happened, at least at time of release, less than 100 years ago, which is really yeah. exciting, because it's historical enough for me mm-hmm. to really sink my teeth into, and recent enough that they they have to make a lot of the more phantasmic, whimsical things about it, mm-hmm. much more grounded mm-hmm. in a reality that we can understand, a reality that exists after the development of and uh, har- like cultivation of electrical stuff, if you will. Um, yeah. And it's set in a in a really interesting time where you can find a way to compare and contrast the the fantasy elements of having that living life force that's also their electricity, if you will, right next to the development and mass production of electricity. Uh, And this is how you know I can never quite give up history. Something that's fascinating to me is that it's set in 1914 at the Smithsonian, Mm -hmm. but the Smithsonian they give us is practically interchangeable with the Museum of Natural History. And in 1913... Just a little bit down south from the Natural History Museum, we had gotten New York City's first ever all-electric uh, public facility in the ter- in the oh. form of Grand Central Terminal. So this was a very exciting time for the public's interaction with these new energy sources. And I just thought that was so cool. It is cool. Well, and something I didn't realize that this was um, their answer to wanting to do an animated Jules Verne film, which I thought was really interesting. um, That This was inspired by Journey to the Center of the Earth, but they wanted something more tangible, Mm -hmm. um, which then I went, so much of this makes so much more sense as to why we're setting it in this time. No, granted, like Mm -hmm. 1913 is the the Titanic crash and we're we're about to get into World War One. And Mm -hmm. so if you set it too much later, you then have a war to deal with, um, which some of these characters may or may not be, you know, involved in a war. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think, I do think it's interesting also that it was Disney's first kind of connection with wanting to make a comic book movie as well. Yeah, Um, and it was also their first real sci-fi. Yes, it was their first real sci-fi, other than like an animated, because we'd had Black Hole and we'd had Tron um, when they were in the exploratory age when Disney almost died. Um, Yeah. But yeah, there's so many little, there's so many little things that I thought I should know, but I had no idea when I was going into this, um, when, you know, when we were doing it. So that's why, again, I, you know, we were going to record this a couple, actually a couple months ago now, and I was ill. And so it's given me a chance to like really watch this movie about three times Mm -hmm. in that time and go, God, I love this movie so much right? for so many reasons that I didn't remember. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was the first Disney movie that I interacted with where I was aware it was a Disney animated feature. And I was also aware that there was no singing. And I, it just broke my brain the first time I saw it. It was beautiful. And and it's really interesting that they decided that, that, you know, it's always interesting to see two Disney movies that go hand in hand in their production. And so like, well, you know, famously one of them is Hercules because only because the directors wanted to make Treasure Planet, which makes me go, yeah. Um, and but uh-huh. this one is this one's so intrinsically connected with Hunchback, 
Um, which oh, yeah. is another one of my Disney favorites from 96. And, you know, only five yeah. years apart. But how much the world changed and how much media changed between 1996 oh, and 2001. God, yeah. also and you this- also, the, the, um, the animation style, how they, I actually, I wrote this down the, the, after you <laughs> told me this, I went back and rewatched and I started taking notes on the things that I already loved. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the first things I wrote down is, oh my God, they came so far from Hunchback. Cause Hunchback was really the first time that you saw Disney really diving in on uh, a mixture of CG and hand animation mm-hmm. in a way that was meaningful to the story. And yeah. the separation between that first deep dive and where we ended up with Atlantis, where it feels so much uh, more seamless, was yeah. really gorgeous. And they really used it to best effect. And it really did need a sci-fi turn to be able mm-hmm. to make the most of that. Because if you're setting it in, you know, uh, medieval renaissance, way before we have electricity, way before we have computers-ness, right. uh, it can feel a little bit jarring. And I remember thinking that about the Beauty and the Beast Christmas special, too, how weird it was that the organ Ooh. looked like it was from a completely separate world. But in Atlantis, they meet so nicely. Like, you they can do, believe the Leviathan. Yeah. Well, it's also, too, to me, they aren't afraid because typically there's like an old adage of keep magic out of science fiction and keep science out of magic, Mm -hmm. out of fantasy. And they don't. They throw them both into this so hard um, because then they immediately go, oh, well, magic, this magic is technology. It's the exact same thing. It's just Earth technology instead of. You know, instead of electric technology, and you go, yeah. well, shit, okay, you're not wrong. All right, here uh-huh. we are. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that we couldn't have had this movie any earlier, and mm-hmm. any later it would have been messier because they would have tried to completely digitally render the whole thing. Because yeah. by 2009, we, we're in... Princess and the Frog and Tangled, where mm-hmm. everything's digitally rendered. I mean, Princess and the Frog, yeah. you know, is one of the last digi- the hand-drawn. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah, well, in this, it, it, it almost seems like science fiction is where you want to combine hand-drawn and digital because mm-hmm. it is, it's going to be the melding of those two art forms in a way yeah. that is built for science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also... It, go for go it. So uh, something what? else that occurred to me that's a little bit, mm-hmm. it's a, I didn't think that this would occur to me, but it was released in June of 2001 and it features yes. a cultural genocide and many explosions and a lot of guns. Uh, and I don't think that they would have been able to do this without serious backlash from higher production if it happened, what, three months later? Yeah, so if they if this had been the 2001 Christmas release, it would have gotten yeah. pulled. I Oh, absolutely. Now that's conje- that's conjecture, um but there would have been no Disney release that year. I thoroughly believe no. in my heart of hearts um or they would have re-released an older movie in its place. Um, yeah. and done a, a, um, a mass re-release. But yes, no, I was kind of, it's funny, just before you said that, I was going to say that this is the last moment in time that this movie could have taken place for a while. Mm-hmm. Because and then by the time that came back, we wouldn't have had James Garner anymore. And there goes yep. the commander, and I can't imagine the movie yep. without him. 
It's so true. They are, uh, th- and I was also going to say that any other moment in time, this cast would not have worked together either. Um, and they mm-hmm. wouldn't have been able to be together. Um, and they are yeah. so wonderful. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it first because I'm a huge um, Different World fan. I mean, and just, mm-hmm. I'm a, I was born in 85, so I'm a kid of the 90s. And Cree Summer is my childhood. She is my wife. Uh, And so the fact that she does not get more clout and more credit and the fact that Kida is buried in such a way in in Disney product and Disney mythos that like... It's a crime. It's it's a crime because she's such a great character. Now, granted, we'll probably get into... I'll I'll be interested to talk to you about her agency as a female character in a Mm -hmm. little bit um, when we talk about kind of how this stacks up to time. But... Mm -hmm. um, She's so wonderful, and she understands the stakes of her people in such a way from the moment that we meet her and her father. Uh, But also, like, Leonard Nimoy as the Atlantean king. That 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 deep He's growling so Vulcan. Like I just yeah. Dina Ogden Styers and um mm-hmm. Michael J. Fox as Milo. I'm pulling um, Jim Varney in. Yeah, like, it just, <sighs> there's so much John Mahoney and Phil mm-hmm. Morris, mm-hmm. which this was, uh, And oh, Florence heard, Stanley oh, was exemplary in it. Exemplary, because she does what she does best. Like, that is, it is her... Yeah. Like, it is the, she, she is that beautiful kind of character, and, uh, yeah, it just, mm-hmm. it makes sense. I'm trying to... I was looking and seeing this was yeah. one of the actor's final roles. And, you know... You uh, Jim Varney. Jim Varney. Yes, you are correct. Um, yeah. Who uh, is... Uh, cookie. Uh, cookie. God bless Cookie. <laughs> God. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's one of those that... I mean, and Jim Cummings obviously is in this. You can't tell me that he's not because he is. It's, it's yeah. evident. Um, you know, an old it's all Disney there. staple. You know, and it's just everything about this movie is kind of perfect, especially because Ron Clements and John Musker are the directors, mm-hmm. and yeah. they've done so. I mean, so many prolific Disney films. Um, oh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I lied, I lied, I lied, I lied. I was looking. No, at it's Don Han. Um, Don yeah, Han. Yeah, yes, Who gave you. us Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and Nightmare Before Christmas, yeah. but also Haunted Mansion yeah. and the new Disney Live remake. So he's a little bit hit or miss, but this was really a hit for me, and I'm upset to this day that it was a miss for everybody else. Yeah, I was going to say it's a 6.9 on um, uh, IMDb and a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Disgusting. Like, I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. No one could tell. No one. No one knew that Home on the Range was coming, so you couldn't tell that it was going to get. You know, this was. wasn't actually that bad. It was going to get worse. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, or Chicken Little or Mom Mars Needs Moms. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, all all of which will get episodes. Don't at oh. me, everyone, if those are your favorites. But like, oh my god, I don't, I don't get well. And like, this movie didn't do really well. Um, no, but. And and so like they quietly canceled. I didn't realize they were doing an attraction based on this for Disneyland. But while I was watching them rescuing Kida as the the crystal, I mm-hmm. went, "This feels like an attraction. Yeah. This feels like a a pseudo coaster dark ride for me. That would have been really cool." 
Um, yeah. Now, now, you know, and then going and realizing that we do have a journey to the center of the Earth ride at Tokyo Disney that is similar, you know, could easily get an Atlantis yeah. overlay. But, like, you know, it's one of those things that I, you know, this even, it made so much money. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. Is it made a, like, I get that the budget was between 90 and 120 million, but, like, it grossed 186 million worldwide, 84 million mm-hmm. of that in the U.S. So, like, it mm-hmm. also made 102 million worldwide. So, like, the, or outside of the U.S., what the fuck is wrong with people? Like, I do I know. I, I feel like nobody's revisited this in a way that they've given it another chance. Like, I mean, I do have ideas at Cough Cough Disney Broadway. Uh, Talk to me, cough. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll but, get there. Oh I, I God. want everybody to hear your, I want everybody <sighs> to hear your, your pitch because I love it. Um, but yeah, like we did get a direct-to-video sequel because those were so gonna successful happen. apparently. But like they ended up, they had already had a sequel planned, which like this movie to me sets up an extended universe. Like... Right? Milo oh, but we don't want to talk Milo about the Thatch sequel. Being... We don't want to talk Let's about not... the sequel. Oh, no. What honestly, sequel? I, what sequel? I haven't I haven't seen it, so I can't talk about don't. it. Don't. Honestly. Don't. I have not. Don't. It's um, trash. I'm, the animation I mean, takes a huge step down. The voice acting also takes a huge step down. There is exactly one mini story within it that's worth its weight in salt that involves a ghost man who's also a coyote. Everything else is awful. Don't see oof. it. It's not worth it. I well, don't consider they it canon. Couldn't even, they, couldn't even, they couldn't even get Michael J. Fox back for it, but the mm-hmm. always amazing James Arnold Taylor takes over as Milo, which yeah. James Arnold Taylor looks like Milo. <laughs> yeah, but there's um, a Ragnarok thing that happens. There's a coyote man uh, in the desert, which is actually... Uh, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk a little bit about the ethics and how they stand up over time, and I hate the yeah. sequel, but they do a really important thing about the repatriation of artifacts there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. which is touched we upon will... in the original, but we really get to dive yeah. deeper because Kida is connected with the Navajo in some way. Oh, There's a, a cultural okay. connection there that predates colonization, and so... She can communicate with the spirits of the desert a little better than anybody else can. And there's these dust winds that kick up that she's able to calm down because she's able to return a lot of the stuff she was finding in gift shops back to where they were supposed to be. That's really cool, actually. Yeah. Well, they do... They did talk about how they, when they were doing the research for this, because they knew they wanted it to have a journey to the center of the earth feel, but also that we were at a point in 2001 where they were going, we need to have this grounded culturally somewhere. And Mm -hmm. even if we're set, you know, because we find out that while the book was in Iceland, they're not 100% specific as to where they're going to find Atlantis. Mm -hmm. So, um... And so what they said the creators did was they pulled from some of the oldest of old Mayan and uh, Central South American um, uh, native lore, um, some Canadian Mm -hmm. native lore, what was existing in other countries that could have, like, come into this area because they were an island country. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they talked about Plato interacting with the Linus before these things and, and what it would have meant that they were reachable 
by you know boat for people mm-hmm. and so what that meant so i do think this is one of the earliest examples where we're seeing because you know i was you know um we'll get to it but they've already announced the live action is probably going to yeah. happen and so my thought is you know we're in a culture you know we're being an artist you know you and i both work creatively uh, behind and in front of the table that the idea mm-hmm. of casting is really important now but i go as a, also as a designer, I go, okay, cool, we have the animated. I need something a little more visually, like, grounded. And for you as a dramaturg, I'm sure you're going, we need at least some sort of clarification to build this world. Oh, and absolutely. And so that was kind of watching it again this morning. I was sitting there going, this is great for 2001, but I need something a little bit deeper if we're going to keep trying to build this world again. Yes. Um, And we're seeing that that with other Disney properties on stage right now. I was amazed at how more, uh, how much of a better sense of place and time I got from Disney's Frozen on Broadway. And I did not expect that. And suddenly I knew exactly Mm -hmm. where and when we were. So it's not impossible. And they have teams already that know how to do that. I'm hoping Mm -hmm. they'll do that. (laughs) And I'd even say Aladdin, Aladdin on Broadway, we get a little bit, they... They care a little more to put Aladdin where Disney decided to put Aladdin, which my Aladdin episode is out, and Matt Storm and I talk about that a little bit of how it's not mm-hmm. actually where Aladdin was set. But, yeah. you know, they delve into making it a little more culturally correct because we're just at that point, and if you're at home groaning, rolling your eyes, I'd really love to hear your, your thoughts just of how you think we don't need to honor other people's culture when we're taking their stories. But especially because... This is an example. This is a rare non-example of when you're thinking about a story that has been told. Most people immediately think of the Disney version. Mm-hmm. You, like they immediately go there, and this isn't one because Atlantis has existed through comic books and books, and this idea of traveling and journeying. Honestly, I'm surprised it was never part of Indiana Jones, but we have a new Indiana Jones, so who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, You know, it's one of those things where this story, you know, when you search Atlantis, the TV show for Stargate and the Aquaman movie come out, come up Mm -hmm. right next to it. So it's one of those things where this is one of the rare examples where Disney actually didn't have the pressure of Mm -hmm. being the only version of a story. Because even with Tarzan, people either think of the old black and white silent or movies or they think of Disney's animated Tarzan even though it has a, a rich novelization which is heavily flawed and problematic mm-hmm. but this is one of those rare examples where when you think of Atlantis you're not just thinking of the Disney version of of the story they told and it also has a much deeper cultural route through generations that we can still remember like every kid in the western world i feel like has had an Egyptology phase. We all have mm-hmm, that book mm-hmm. on our shelf with the fake gemstones in it. All of us have tried to play that game that they have with the little cardboard pieces. Yep. We've all had that, and that all roots back to the period that this movie is set in, in the 1900s, 19-teens, even early eight, uh, yep. uh, earlier into the 1890s. Uh, this, the story itself in time is rooted in a time when we were starting to really look for Atlantis, the same as we were looking mm-hmm. for Troy and looking for the tombs of the kings. Mm-hmm. It was a time where there was a as you've been saying, very problematic push to take all the artifacts out of the places that, you know, they belong to and put them behind glass for white people in suits to look at and not really understand them. But, uh, but as far back as the 19 teens, 
people had had this major push of someday we're going to have a submersible that can find Atlantis. Someday we'll find the evidence that there was an Atlantis. Uh, and that's been a really popular part of our culture. And these fantastical cities of Troy, Atlantis, um, have kept archaeology in a big way in the mainstream because people probably don't care all that much about archaeoanthropology until they found King Tut's tomb and that ended mm -hmm. up at the um, at the museums in New York or until somebody conclusively found the wall of Troy and then that turned mm -hmm. out to be wrong and behind that there was the conclusive wall of Troy and so forth and so on so yeah. Atlantis uh, for me, my first thought after the Disney movie is the history of pop archaeology. And that's something mm -hmm, that everything mm -hmm. else has drawn off of. And even people who had never heard of uh, the, the Leakies or any of their contemporaries... Mm -hmm who had never done anything to explore past that one Egyptology book that was published forever ago, um, they still have that context, which I think is we kind do. of amazing. Well, and I think we're also... Something Disney does, which is try to sometimes put the film within the pop culture zeitgeist of the time without making mm -hmm. shitty self-referential -refer pop culture, which this does yes. that. There's no 2001 pop culture in this, which I am obsessed with. Because um, mm -hmm. even if you look at Hercules, which, you know, is, again, they're telling a fairy tale from Greek lore um, uh -huh. that, you know, there's, you know, Air but Jordan air hercs? Uh, jokes and stuff. Yeah. yeah, the air hercs. Like, and you, you go in a little, but it's funny, but it was also the 90s where like that was the yeah. thing but this um i can't show my baby cousins really... hercules and have them get the jokes but here right it right. works well but it's also important because we immediately see the dark side of discovery and the dark side of the furthering of education and i is... love that so Which much. Is, I do too. I do too. And that is the nice thing about every time you've got a kid that like cares about dinosaurs, even though we're learning that like this was the period where we learned all the lies about dinosaurs because mm -hmm. they were just making stuff up. Mm -hmm. But like it made people interested. And so we now have kids who want to be archaeologists in 2020, even though the world's probably ending. You know, they're the, yeah. they're these things. But it's um they're showing the dark side of people were in it for money because people thought that because something was cool and nice that they deserved to have that culture in their home mm -hmm. or in a private collection, mm -hmm. which is ultimately at the center of this movie because while our lovely benefactor of this film isn't the villain in the end, mm -hmm. he, he puts together a group of people mm -hmm. who have questionable reasons for being there. Mm -hmm. We're not saying they're bad people, um, but because they're lovely people at the end of the day and they save the day. But it's also, you know, this even says for Milo's grandfather, he's so emboldened and loving of exploration, mm -hmm. but it was never in the name of leaving things there. It was finding things to bring them back to a place, which yeah. I think is something that we are just now, as you're, you know, we are talking about this idea of every time a country goes, well, cool, everything in your museum, we want it back. You know, which makes, you know, the British government freak out because there goes, well, they go, wait, those those are millions of dollars in donations a year that we get from people coming to museums. What does that mean for us? Um, 
Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. rambling. But it's this, you know, this idea that like yeah. we feel that because it's been discovered, we suddenly have some ownership in it because we are fortunate enough to be educated, to be on the forefront of news in a country where you can be educated at that moment of a newspaper running or a serial being run in a movie theater at this time. Or now that we can look back and like find these maps online and find all these tombs that are hidden, we still have people literally you know, stealing from tombs in Egypt and China and just trying to find these things so they can bring the items back, not for us to have the anthropological discovery of finding these moments. Mm -hmm. And you know what? To jump on this for a little bit and to hail back to the characters themselves, uh, what I really love about this movie, um, and there's a lot, so I'm going to say that a lot, but one of the things I really (laughs) love about this movie is the, uh, the foils we get in our two mm-hmm. white male saviors, which is something that Disney had, has done a lot along with all of the media we consumed as kids, yeah. it feels like. But if you compare Milo to Whitmore, uh, Whitmore is the hero you would expect to have in this kind of movie. And it's the hero yes. that people think of when they think of the 19 the turn of the 20th century, we look back with rose-colored glasses on people like John D. Rockefeller. And even Mm -hmm. Andrew Carnegie, Mm -hmm. even though he drowned an entire mining town. um, You think back to the Morgans, the Carnegies, the Tildens, the Lennoxes, the Astors, and you think of all of the cultural wealth that they brought us, giving us libraries, giving us theaters, giving us museums, giving us things to put in those museums. And he even talks about Mm -hmm. the fact that he has blood on his hands and he's got a debt to repay and he's hoping that Milo's grandpa will forgive him now. He's making good on his promise. You see this tremendously haunted man Mm -hmm. in the brief moments that you see Mm -hmm. him. And then on the flip side, you have Milo, this beautiful character who is fully aware that he is not the only culture worth having on the earth. He, in some ways, some could say that he disavows his cultural identity, but I think that it really couches him more in a more global cultural identity that he's able mm-hmm. to identify with and sympathize with and uh, and champion the cause of a civilization that is, as he says, the root of everything because they speak this root language and can somehow magically mm-hmm. understand mm-hmm. English and French and Italian and and Latin and everything. Um, you get kind of a transition from the old in Preston Whitmore and the the wealthy philanthropist benefactor who's trying to pay away his demons by funding these expeditions mm-hmm. and a new age sensitive hero who's not there to save the day as much as he is there with his friends to save mm-hmm. each other. And if the day gets saved along with it, fantastic. Uh, it's, it's a more selfless hero and it's a more uh, community-minded hero. And it came at a time when we weren't quite used to that yet. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, it's... Uh... I think, you know, it's a 90-minute movie, and so some of those moments of, like, we don't need them to explain how a root language suddenly makes it where they can understand it, but... Um, yeah. But it also... And that's part of the magic was, of the thing. Yeah. It's also... It's a Disney movie. There, there's going to be some magic yeah. and unexplained things, and if that's what you're harping on, you're harping on the wrong thing. But there's one oh, thing that they also kind of don't hit on, but I think they do hit on, is that Atlantis was a cultural hub for so many other countries, 
um, mm-hmm. that actually, you know, this might come into like things that I would have liked to see different of. I would have liked to seen in that beginning, maybe instead of rushing right into the disaster, seeing them interacting with people of different backgrounds and skin tones and dress, um, to then yeah. seeing what happens when, um, when that moment does happen, that Kita's mother has to sacrifice herself. So maybe, and I don't um, think we need much. I think no, I think all no, we would no. need is a couple of minutes of them walking through that square, and Kita's mother mm-hmm. maybe interacting with vendors from all over the world and speaking different languages, and uh, maybe some offhand remarks to uh, her husband about the the military strategy moving forward. Mm-hmm, if it was in mm-hmm. the moments before the the wave. Before the catastrophe, as the catastrophe is happening, mm-hmm. distant, we only got a couple minutes to couch us in what that culture looked like, interacting with other cultures right. in the bazaar, and then you, right. she looks up, she hears something, she looks over, something's wrong, and we cut to where we actually start the movie. That would have right. been enough for me. Well, or, or maybe it's even a people are asking them questions of like, Queen, 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 is it true that, is it true that a disaster is coming? Or, or should we be worried? Should we leave? And you're seeing people kind of like in, in boats that look vaguely Grecian and Asian and mm-hmm. Nordic are leaving the ports quickly. And so you have people that are like, should we wonder? And she goes, no, 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 no. We don't have anything to worry about. Mm-hmm. We will be fine. We, you know, Atlantis is stud before. We will stand after. Those things that you expect a, a a well-meaning royal to say a well-meaning leader who you know yeah. believes in the their science and magic that you know that are two and two you know they go together um but just those little things question maybe even yeah, yeah yeah would you have wanted her to believe that or would you have wanted her to be reassuring people knowing that they couldn't get out fast enough and that they had they I, were going I, to fall yes. to the weight of their own hubris I think so. I I think because they animate con- they animate concern so beautifully in this movie yeah. that I think we could see a weight on the queen and a weight on the king that they know, and then a and a, a lightness to Kita as a baby, mm-hmm. um, and and that be one of those things of like she's trying to reassure them, but they know, but she's you know maybe it's not they're not even walking through. They're quickly helping people close up in the market, wrap mm-hmm. up their vendors board up their homes because they're going no 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 we've had storms but let's and she knows the levees will hold is that the levees will hold and she ultimately knows that she will sacrifice herself because mm-hmm. that is her role as the queen um and I, I love which, that you know, which i think is i i do too i i do well and my only other thing is maybe not just atlanteans have been at the king's court when when milo and Co show, yeah. which could then easily explain how they are fully versed in all of the languages because they've had thousands of years to just sit there and mm-hmm. learn each other's language. Is it weird that I you kind know. of hope that, like, I hope that somewhere on the cutting room floor there's at least storyboarding for a scene where they're going through to the eye of the king, they're going through to the power source, and they like find discarded bits of cultural detritus from other cultures of people who were yeah. uh, trying to feed off of this thing that wasn't keyed into them because they were from a different place, yes. their body wasn't used to it, and they just couldn't hold up with that coursing through them quite as well as the yeah. Atlanteans could. It would be grim, there would be bones, but I'd enjoy it. 
Uh, well, I think I think part of the protection there should have been um, when um, oh, I'm blanking on names. Oh my god, hold on. Um, um, Which um, one? Um, 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 when Rourke, when Rourke, they're they've oh. got Kida and they're mm-hmm. in the tomb. I, I want to call it. It's not the tomb of the kings, but it's the tomb of the kings. Mm-hmm. Um, when he kicks and everything goes red, I lo- like how funny would it have been to have Hercules's chest armor there with the, with the Zeus's like medallion on it? Like I yeah. love a good Disney Easter egg because like we had the Lion King one of he's wearing scar and it's those funny little things um, mm-hmm. that like uh, you know that would have been a good moment. But he kicks them in. But then what happens is we get these ghostly bodies that then suddenly are clawing at them, and that's why Kita gets pulled up by the crystal is because suddenly all of the fallen warriors are that were not worthy are there to also protect someone else who was not worthy. So it's that idea mm-hmm. that Rourke and and um, Helga and Milo aren't worthy of becoming an emissary, but Kita is. And mm-hmm. so the moment that she gets stopped up, it stops those things. Just, you know, those those mm-hmm. are things that are very much, I think, in a post-Pirates of the Caribbean world. Those mm-hmm. are things that we would have seen. Maybe those are things we'll see in the, uh, you know, assumed live action. But um, Maybe. They're going to need they They're in a mode right now where I have a feeling that they will have the feeling that the stakes in that cavern are going to have to be higher for an audience to believe it, uh, which is not something we needed, you know, nearly 20 years ago. But to speak to a point you made, you mentioned that you were fascinated by the role that Kida played as a female hero um, and and where she really lies on that spectrum. If she was progressive, she was regressive. And what I, what I love about your idea for, really getting to getting a moment with Kita's mom is that I always got the impression that Kita's mom was the perfect role model for her. And that's why she stepped so naturally into a position of leadership in a moment of crisis. And you got the sense from that one moment of Kita's mother going fearlessly into the power source that, uh, into the heart of Atlantis, that this was something that she was prepared for and this was not something that was out of character for her. So from a very young age and for the next 8,000 years, Kida's last impression of her mother was one of a strong leader who did what it took to keep her people safe. And you get that sense in that she's... Uh, she embodies both the feminine and the masculine in a leadership role. She is mm-hmm. not afraid to wail on somebody, but she's also very capable of stepping into um, a more physically passive and a more spiritually and energetically active, uh, almost maternal protective role as she shields everybody. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree absolutely so much. Well, and it's we. They had to because, you know, I do think they split the time beautifully in the film of leading up to Atlantis and then our time in Atlantis. Mm -hmm. Um, And something else they do that I think it says something beautifully, and I've noticed it every moment that I have... um, Every moment that I've watched this is the fact that we see a group of, I don't know what to call them other than shock troopers, Mm -hmm. um, that are always in masks and they're always, um, they always have uh, some sort of breath stabilizer um, Mm -hmm. that uh, that they can... um, you know, that means no matter what happens, they're going to be able to breathe or whatnot. But um, it's, uh, 
you know, it's it's something. It's it's yeah. an absolute something that I, you know, it's one of those very powerful moments of how when Milo goes, oh, of course, how did I not see it? And I go, yeah, Milo, I don't know how yeah. you didn't see it. Yeah, I gotta be honest. Um, yeah, but something before we get before we get too mm-hmm. far because we're talking about where we are in history, the fact that everybody except Cookie, mm-hmm. Margaret, is it Margaret? Yes, Margaret, and. Um, uh, Margaret and or Mrs. Packard um, and mm-hmm. I guess Milo and um, Rorick they're mm-hmm. all immigrants everybody's an immigrant Yeah. which again it's this moment in time I think it's really important and they're reflecting in a way so they're doing it in a sense of the American dream because mm-hmm. Disney, no matter what we say, will always feed into that idea of the American mm-hmm. dream for better or for worse. Um, my conversation on that is something mm-hmm. for another episode of the podcast. <laughs> but at no point, like, we could tell they're, they're not coming from the best of backgrounds, but, like, Audrey is so cute and adorable when she's talking yeah. about, like, uh, and she was like, and she's like, what, are, what happened to your sister? And she's like, oh, she's up for the championships next week. And you're like, yes, she yeah. is. Uh, yes, she yes, is. Yes, she is. Um, mm. You know, and it's just these characters, they're so dopey and lovable, but they're so lovable and wonderful and really, really quietly represent what America looked like at that point, which I think is very important. Exactly. Um, I have heard so many people complain about how diverse this cast is and that it wouldn't have been appropriate to the time, but we're, now you know this, but for the benefit of your readers, or your listeners, I I am a tour guide and most of my time I spend at the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island, so I have a lot of stats on this. Uh, And we were, we're talking about peak years at Ellis Island. Just seven years earlier, 1907, uh, that was the busiest year in Ellis Island's history with 1,006,000 people coming through, 11,747 in a day. And Ellis Island, contrary to popular belief, got immigrants from every single inhabited continent, plus a couple penguins from Antarctica that had to come through customs. So I say it counts. (laughs) But uh, so to see media that accurately represents what America, especially what urban America, what crowded, cramped, Mm -hmm. smelly America felt like is amazing. And it's completely timely and it's completely within Mm -hmm. the realm of possibility Mm -hmm. for the historic period we are talking about. Well, and also why they would have all made those decisions to go yeah. on this because when Milo goes isn't it about the adventure which Milo though he is working in the boiler room of an institution he still has the privilege of coming from well off people mm-hmm. who were well educated and to work in a well off white institution of the time Milo though bringing yeah. up the rear a little bit in his status he in any other situation could have gotten exactly what he was looking for where the rent which is why mm-hmm. he doesn't understand I think or he does he understands I think in that moment of what money means to others um, but also what, what the rest of America goes yeah that's cool but I would have wanted the money too like and so I think it's one of those things that it's, yeah. it's one of the rare examples early on of Disney making a statement about who these people were and how long that maybe their family had been in the country. Mm-hmm. Cause you even have Helga who 
does not speak with an affectation at all. But you guess her family probably has come has come from somewhere in Eastern Europe, and if she is born in America and recently, or briefly, or if she came over as a small child, she has had enough time as an American. But you can tell. She went through some sort of special military training, which means to me that she probably was born in another country who was, Mm -hmm. you know, with dealing with things. And so it explains where all of them are, because even at the end of the day, she is Warwick's second in command, but she is not a human and she is not evil. And she Mm -hmm. is only doing the things she needs to do to get out of that situation in one piece, but not to sacrifice everyone else involved. All of her actions were to have the least amount of casualties, which mm-hmm. I think is something very important to be to be notated, and not because she's weaker, because she beats the shit out of work. But it's uh-huh. just that idea that he has the upper hand. Um, because he's not afraid situation. of losing everything. Especially because, not afraid of other people losing things. She strikes me as a... At the end of the day, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're good. You're she, good. Go uh, ahead. She strikes me as an I'm not bad, I'm drawn this way kind of thing because well, uh, I mean, she is just she is she's the real life Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. And like, also she's drawn as the film noir film fatale. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, no mm-hmm, matter mm-hmm. she could have baked a whole tray of cookies and we mm-hmm. still would think that she had something up her sleeves just because of the way she looks, right. which was absolutely on purpose. I no one can tell me it right. wasn't. Well, and she is the one that points most that they that the directors wanted a Mike Mignola style of movie. Mm-hmm. And Mike Mignola, for everyone out there who um, he created Hellboy for Dark Horse Comics, yeah. and he's part of you know he's done the B uh, the BPRD Abe Sapien Lobster Johnson, but mm-hmm. I believe he also did Ultraviolet A on Flux for MTV, and she looks just like those characters. Yeah, um, but she gives this very strong female energy that's only over-sexualized in the beginning because she's trying to get Milo there but realizes that's not going to work on him. And she drops it as soon as they're in the elevator. It's amazing. Exactly. And pulls her hair up, and she is very Uh no-nonsense. But again, at the end of the day, you can tell that she cares about that group without saying it because they're her troops. Mm -hmm. And so there's she's by far one of my favorite characters. And again, it's one of those things where we talk about, great, one of the only three people that die in this other than the ensemble characters are, is a woman. Mm-hmm. You get a man of color, mm-hmm. you get the villain, and you get a woman. Yeah. But I would say this is a rare situation where she, in that last moment of her death, she she fucks shit up for everybody. Like oh, yeah. she, she helps them win in that moment. And so I think this is one of the, well, this is a movie that nobody talks about how out of the Disney formula this is to me this movie took the formula they broke tried to break with Tarzan and then they smashed it with this because this is only two years after Tarzan yeah. and I would say this movie could have never happened without Tarzan now I'm sure they were being worked on at the same time mm-hmm. like tangentially but um you know it's it's just it's this movie is beautifully perfect, and yeah. it, it kind of breaks my heart that it's got a much lower score than than Treasure Planet does. Now, Treasure Planet, we're doing at the end of the season, so I haven't rewatched yet, and I have not seen in a very long time. But I remember loving it, but I also remember it not I, being, you know, 
art. Yeah. Well, well, and when you look at it with the other movies of this area, this era, which is Fantasia 2000, Dinosaur, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Emperor's New Groove, mm-hmm. Lilo and Stitch, Treasure mm-hmm. Planet, Brother Bear, Home in the Range, Chicken Little, Bolt, and Meet the Robinsons. Um, you know, it's one of those things that it's like, huh, you know, it's, um, mm, it's, eh. now Meet the Robinsons and Bolt were a little tangentially separate, but this comes in middle of the range for the movies and yeah. actually, um, middle of the middle to low actually it's the third lowest film of this era the mm-hmm. only thing ranked lower than this is brother bear and chicken little i love Home brother bear Rangers it's not a higher score than this movie i know it's disgusting <laughs> and i don't want to knock meet the robinsons because uh very very mm-hmm. dear friend and former colleague of ours um katie dorico is about mm-hmm. to go and marry her college boyfriend, Alex Alderman, and that's their movie. Uh, well, I love that movie. But, I, love, I love Meet the Robinsons, yeah. and we're going to do it this season on the show. But when you're looking at these movies, dinosaurs scored higher. Like, these are things that I yeah, find so shocking. Like, yeah, you know, comparing and contrasting are, are, are heavily flawed. Heavily, heavily flawed. Mm-hmm. But when you're looking at the stories that are being told, I mean, and like for me, standouts of this era are Lilo and Stitch. They are the Emperor's New Groove. But even to me, mm-hmm. I like this as much as I like Emperor's New Groove, if not better. Mm-hmm. It's and perfect. I just think it's this is the only movie that's not pumped full of humor, I think, yeah. is what it is. is that it's funny, but, like, it, it's an action film first, which even Treasure Planet, I don't think, is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the humor I mean, in it is much Brother older. Bringing up the bottom, but. You've got things yeah. like the phone call in the submersible, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea with the Leviathan right there, and she's, and Mrs. Packard is having a chat with her girl back home. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> yes. things like that. That's, I, and and I the, love the, the that. England like, and France must never come together, must never blend together. Mm-hmm. That's gold. And it's something that, mm-hmm. you know, requires a more sophisticated palette and a, more of a sense of geopolitics. But. Oh boy, yeah. so good. I do, I do. I don't want to. I hate being like this, but I feel like this is a more intelligent movie that was made than the time was able. Than the people who wanted to see this movie during that time wanted. Yeah. But I mean, if we also look at this, this is when scary movie was coming out. This is when these kinds of lowest of lowest common denominator films were starting mm-hmm. to come out, and. Um, you don't you even know, have an animal familiar except for that one meal where you have the salamander dog dragon thing that's hanging out with them while they're having dinner. That's the only animal familiar you get in here in a, in a, a world, in a a ethos, in a, an empire that's rife Mm -hmm. with cutesy animal familiars to go and help you Mm -hmm. save the day and be adorable for the tiny children. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is they didn't even really capitalize on the merchandise for this at all. Like I remember, I remember the merchandise and I remember they made it. And I remember I wanted a Kita necklace really bad because yeah. I've always loved crystal things. Uh-huh. Um, that's what kickstart my love of crystals. Me, that's what did well, it. And also, 
Well, and also this, it's got a, it's got a little bit of a Power Rangers vibe to it in many mm-hmm. ways of this, like, these, like, animal, and they've got, like, cool mech and things, and there are all these things that make an adventure film for boys and for girls, because I do feel this was, I mean, obviously a gendered film for boys, mm-hmm. but having Kida at the front also, and, and four female cast members, because mm-hmm. uh, the principal cast is only 12, and, like, Five of those 12 are women. That is an almost 50-50 split. And you know Which, you know, isn't great, but, like, it's still... It's something. But I think that the only reason that we understand it as being uh, marketed towards boys and really aiming towards boys is because it came out at a time when we didn't really have much of a push for women in STEM. Yep. If this movie came out today, for example... Uh, I think that people would be writing tons of op-eds about the the various forms of what it can mean to be a woman across all of the different characters and how this gives you a really nice spread that you have. Like, I know when I grew, when I saw it, like, my first instinct was, I love Kida, I would love to hang out with her, but I want to be Helga when I grow up. And now I recognize mm-hmm. that I'm going to be Mrs. Packard when I grow up. Uh, and <laughs> I have a friend who's the, who's spiritually the spitting image of our mechanic. And all of these mm-hmm. things coming together, uh, it would be hailed as a, mm-hmm. a feminist anthem uh, of a movie today in a way that it wouldn't have back then because we didn't really have the women in STEM push. We didn't really have mm-hmm. those. Like, the, the Home on a Lady was pulled out of uh, the Rising Star sy- uh, cave system in 2015, I want to say, or 2013, yeah. by a team of tiny women. And that's something that having a, an anthropological dig, if you will, which is what this movie starts out as in terms of the the larger plot that's in a lot of ways spearheaded by women would resonate a lot deeper today than it did back then. So I'm excited to see how uh, this this rumored and, and, and highly hyped live action is going to go. Well, and hear me out. I think being in a post-Percy Jackson world is going to help this live action film as well. Oh, yeah. Because... Well, I mean, obviously, when you're talking about this idea that we've we, that that Egyptology book that everybody had, mm-hmm. Rick Riordan kind of took and ran with that. Now their films haven't been great, but Hyperion Books is owned by Disney, so Disney Plus is probably doing the new Percy Jackson series for Disney Plus, which means hopefully a good series. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I think there's now a group. There's you know, well, I mean, I'm a grown ass person still reading all the Rick Riordan books. <laughs> Rick, shout out. If you're listening, come on the show. I'd hey, love Rick. to chat with you, man. Um, hi, Rick. Um, but, like, you know, he's done Greek, Roman, Egypt, and Norse. Uh-huh. Like, he's doing real good. But, like, it's it's that idea that, like, um, kids are obsessed with it now. You know, it's, it's this other idea of the culturally how small we are in a world of how old everything is and mm-hmm. how we are still all connected to those old things. Mm-hmm. in some spiritual way um, which is it's a silly it's a silly moment from Frozen 2 that I love but I think it will have been out long enough that I can Olaf you know Olaf says water has memory and mm-hmm. by the time we're born our water has been through five or six other people and remembers everything mm-hmm. 
you know, it's just those things of whether we're culturally part of something. It's it's that idea we can feel that connection to something, which is yeah. why I feel like we're actually on the precipice of it's actually a really good time for this live action. Especially and because the central the, theme rings so true still, because at the mm-hmm. heart of it, the the things that the kernels of truth we can take from this movie are some obstacles cannot be removed with a show of force, that fantastic line Leonard Nimoy has, and that we can only grow and thrive when we work together. Isolation doesn't work, and uh, and cultural abandonment doesn't work, and we cannot operate on our own. We are dependent on each other for knowledge, we're dependent on each other for strength, we're dependent on each other for community. Uh, And, you know, before I said that this never, that I think this never would have come out towards the end of 2001, I think those are things we could have really used. So while I still think that this is, the the explosions and the, the, the cultural genocide and all that wouldn't have flown, um, and it would have been pulled, it would have been a shame because we really needed yeah. those things and we still do from a host of of global problems that in this highly connected post-internet world all of us are even more exposed to. Well, and it's, I'm, I, I feel like they would have pulled it back in and remade half the movie, like redone the movie and done it for a mm-hmm. 2002 summer release, and it would have lost the movie. Like, mm-hmm. I think this is one of those that there are so yeah. few changes that I think need to be made to this movie that I think, you know, I think in the grand scheme of especially when we're looking at, and you know, this is... This is within the years after Jeffrey Katzenberg left Disney, and these were the kind of movies he actually wanted to do with Disney that he did with DreamWorks. Um, But I feel Mm -hmm. like, again, this movie couldn't have been made any earlier, and it probably wouldn't have been made any later. And the only reason it's being remade is because it's... Disney's looking at what are their cult properties now, where the people Mm -hmm. that love it are adults and will pay $15 to come see it. Yeah. Now, and we'll take their kids to hopefully fall in love with it. Yes, and they've dug a little hole because some Mm -hmm. of our live-action movies, let's rephrase, most of them have been garbage or have been, let me me rephrase, I hate being negative because there's always something beautiful about them. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Or like Beauty and the Beast to me only had one big misstep, and we're not going to talk about what that misstep is because it's going to be polarizing. Um, okay. But um, uh, you know, it's uh, that's one of those where I feel like if they follow it and they make a similar movie, it it could be really good, and mm-hmm. you could have a Milo who is really interested in history but doesn't want to take the cultures. He wants to go and find it, learn about it, and leave it there, yeah. which I think I actually love the idea of a young Tom Holland playing Milo. He's the name that came out with the original. I mean, if it can't uh, be know, Sean Orman, Tom release. Holland is the next best thing. Yeah, like and yeah. he's very he's cute and darling and he's super he's he's this generation's Michael J. Fox. Like that's the thing is he has a lot of those qualities or, that Michael had. Yeah, and I think that the uh the the fascinating thing to me about this is that Tom Holland kind of is the love child of Michael J. Fox and Charlie Cox. Yeah, he's a little bit of both. Absolutely. Yeah. And Charlie Cox would yeah. have been the live action, I think, when if it was made at the right time, he would have been the right type for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at Stardust. 
Yeah. Stardust was only a couple years after this, maybe mm-hmm. five years, four years, not even that long. Oh, I know it's not Disney, but I could talk for hours about that movie. Maybe I'll, oh, do, God, Neil, I'll, do, I'll do a Neil Gaiman podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, do Gaiman next. Call me when you're doing good um, omens. Uh, but I love, but Charlie Cox, he's great. You know, they, there are so few men who are right for these roles who mm-hmm. are also good actors. Yeah. Because that's the thing at the end of the day is you need a phenomenal actor that understands the nuance of a character. But also somebody that can get, like, I don't know anybody else right now that can get the energy and the excitement that Milo has. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's it's a lot of what Tom does as Peter Parker. And yeah. he is a perfect Peter Parker. Um, you and know, I can see this and, being know, a project he's perfect. excited about. And when he gets oh, excited I'm about sure. a project, it's fantastic. I'm sure they've told him nothing about the project because everybody would have known about it already. Right? <laughs> oh, uh, oh. He's just, he's such a precious little cinnamon bean. God, he's oh. just, oh, I want to protect him. He's so lovely. I just, he's so good. Oh. Okay, anyway, now for Tom Holland Love Hour. There'll be mm-hmm. lots more of that. Because he's tied to another... Maybe it's Charger Planet, too, because they're talking about remaking that, and his name also came up with that. But he's I'd rather see him do this than that. Yeah, but, it's the haircut. But, they um, have they have very similar haircuts, haircut. our two protagonists. It's it's true, because that... Well, it's, it's the that, floppy center back cut. In that writer strong... Yeah, the, it's that Boy Meets World writer strong... Yeah. Um, which if they do need a lead, we have a kid here at the University of Florida who looks who looks just like Jim Hawkins, bright, sunny personality. I'm not going to say his name on air, but he'd be perfect. If Disney, you want to call us, I'll, I'll hook you up. He's great. He's mm-hmm. great, great, great. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think, I think Sarah, we're, we're, we're kind of yeah. dancing around it. So let's talk about it. I think we, we have a responsibility, um, especially being like, Two privileged white people who uh, exist in a queer spectrum and a non-queer spectrum, and like um, we're ed- we're privileged enough to be educated in history and kind of theater and film mm-hmm. and have the background that we have um, to talk about what's wrong. Like, is there anything blazingly problematic that needs to be addressed and fixed in 2020? I mean, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna volley mm-hmm. to you first, sure. and then and I'll, I'll I'll weigh in after. I mean, there are things about it that, if it was made today, would be read for filth as problematic. Things like the yeah. fact that the uh, the culture depicted by in the Atlanteans is a mix of everything and is kind of placeless, and therefore you don't really have what you had in Moana with a source culture where right. you could have a focus group to get that done. You also have, you know, your protagonist is a white savior, a literal white savior, um, and our our hero in my eyes needs to be rescued by him in in order to do the heroing. And so you have all of the problems of, you know, this, they're all dependent on this white guy because he knows their culture better than they do. That's weird to me today. Mm -hmm. If I was, if, if my first glimpse of this movie was today, I don't know that I would be in love with it the way that I am. Uh, but I do think that it has right. aged well, much better than a lot of other media that I've been consuming from back then. Uh, have you ever seen We're Back, mm-hmm. a dinosaur story? Mm-hmm. So, so do you remember the bit where the villain no, it's on my uh, list brings the children back in evolution? I have a Don project coming up, so... Yeah, so uh, so there's the whole, like, oh. monkeys as a minstrel show thing that happens there. That did not age well. I think this did better than that. Um, I would have loved to see 
oh. a little bit like if it was made today, I would have loved to seen uh, maybe Kita given more agency. That might be something they're looking at with the the remake, mm. giving her more of a sense of power in the balloon lift. Uh, seeing her yeah. act out in ways that aren't the passive infusing of the glass so that it'll cut Rourke so that he can't handle the, the power inside of him and it cracks him up and makes him into a, a screaming mechanical lich thing. Um, that might be something they might want to look at for the, for the redo. Um, if they bring ScarJo anywhere near this as anything other than Helga, I will throw a fit. Um, <laughs> nope, she shouldn't even, nope, she shouldn't even do that. No, yeah. no, 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 mm-hmm. Star Joe. No mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson. She's been banned. She's banned. Done. Contracts are no done. More. No more. No more. No more. <laughs> uh, but there's, honestly, you know, I think that they did a good job with what they did. And I think that in a way that they could make it better with a remake is potentially um, giving a little bit more attention to the fact that what that, uh, the Skyfish what that pod brought back yeah. was given freely. I think that right. if that happened, there would be something wonderful in that right. um, to, to really hammer home that the reason our protagonists are carrying this with them and the reason we can still like them at the end of it is because they are not willing to take from people who are alive. And to compare that right. to the the Egyptian scavengers that were going through the tombs, yeah, they were taking from dead people from a uh, an empire that had long gone, and the people who were living in Egypt uh, at the time were largely ethnically not connected with those people, mm-hmm. but they were still stealing cultural artifacts from people who were alive even if they were adopted into this culture they had been for so long that there's really no difference um yeah so to have the contrast here is amazing but it it takes somebody who already loves the movie to notice it and to bring it up in conversation so they might have to give it a little more oomph let you notice it let it be more of a moment I think, you know, I think that's great. And that is the biggest thing for me, too, is that Kita, that for some reason, this disaster happening meant that she's illiterate. Like that to me is shocking. Like, that's the one moment that I go, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Like they just stopped educating because half of their people were like murdered Mm -hmm. in a well died in a natural occurrence. They couldn't save everyone like I feel like there would be an over-education of what happened before by her father because he feels that he needs to atone because there was literally nothing he could do in the loss of, of half of his kingdom and and his wife. I also mm. would have loved it if the mother was the actual ruling leader and the father is kind of, not bumbling, but he's he had to step up to then be king and because mm-hmm. Kida is just now becoming old enough to... I guess old enough in the grand scheme of things, but like she's old enough now to be a warrior and protect, but like she's learning how to be in that same a lot of way. She's learning how to be, uh, you know, ruler. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but hold on Milo, for a sec. Do you mean yeah, that, that yeah, the yeah. queen would be the, the heir to the throne that came to the throne and that the king would be a king consort? Yeah. Kind of deal that like the king, 
the queen has the power, but the king then takes over if the wife dies until a daughter mm-hmm. is able to take over, or another, or her sister, you know, or her sister takes over. I think that's what happened, like, because they will yeah. only take a, a a life with with royal blood in them, and that means that she was the birth heir to the throne of Atlantis. Yes, but well, yes, that is true. But also, all the other stones are men, and mm-hmm. I would love it if all of she was like they call them the past kings. Mm-hmm. But what if they're all just women, mm-hmm. or at some point they transition to a matriarchal society? Yeah, um, yeah, just something, just something little like that. That was just, or maybe Kita's mother is the first. But then it is setting a new precedent for, um, because her father is a lovely, amazing character, and he's obviously just keeping that strength together. But the idea that they would stop educating after a natural a, a natural disaster seems the opposite of what a, a dying country would do, which is, oh, kind of, because there are a lot of people in that background. And granted, you don't over animate background people, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of older people, and then a bunch of people Keita's age, a bunch of young men. So, like, obviously, they're not dying out, and we see a few children. Mm-hmm. So, like, they and they live much longer. So, I would think that they would fully launch into um, educating and keeping their their history, their stories, their their way of life, their their um, uh, religion and those things are all would be so vibrant, but it mm-hmm. seems like they're kind of willingly letting themselves, not w- willingly letting themselves, but they're letting the cultural parts of themselves die because they're still so stricken with grief. Because um, what I would love to see is that they stay for a longer period of time and Rorik is biding his time because they need all of these answers from them and Milo is so smart but he can't speak the language he can't you know he can't read it right away like he kind mm-hmm. of gets it and Kida has to teach him I mean it's a little bit of a reverse Tarzan moment mm-hmm. but um but it feels weird that he comes in and saves the day in the 24 hours now I will say I still feel that Kida is the savior at the end of the day, but only because yeah. she, this deus ex, ex machina thing that she is, but she mm-hmm. can only get there because of Milo. Yeah. Um, and that even Rourke is the one that figures out what the center of the King's eye means. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, but again, this is, I think us being storytellers and being kind of being able to be nitpicky, but those yeah. are those things. I agree that I would love to see tweaked just a little bit. Um, you know, I, I see as a story element, where you're coming from with the death of the culture after this, the, uh, the catastrophe. Um, but if you, if you look at what happened in central and southern Europe after the fall of Rome, you see a very similar death yeah. of culture because people are, are really more dependent on getting their survival needs taken care of. Every mm-hmm. empire... Uh, in decline has experienced something like what we see with the Atlanteans. So as a viewer, I'd love to see what you're talking about. But as a historian, I totally get what they were going for there, that this was a people where their limited energy source was being, you know, 
whittled away over millennia of use and yeah. without any replenishment and without anybody taking care of it. And the person who knows the most about the culture, the person who could have answered all of Kida's questions, did not want to because he knew his daughter was just like his wife and would do something right. that made make him lose her. And then that's the last heir to the throne gone too. So he had his empire in mind. But um, I think that the the... I think that that's it would gain something by having their people be culturally literate in a way that they are not. Yeah. Um, but it would also potentially lose something else. And I don't know if that loss would have would be like heartbreaking or anything, but it would be certainly a very different movie. Yeah, yeah it would be. I think when we start pulling one thread, we pull a whole bunch of threads. Yeah. Because um, they do a really nice job of only giving... Disney sometimes gives us an A plot, a B plot, and a B, a, you know, a B minus plot, and then maybe mm -hmm. even a C plot. But this one, we've really got an A plot, and then just a little bit of a subplot mm -hmm. of, of of you know him wanting to bring honor for his grandfather. But even then, Milo is really kind of focused, um, and he's just so darling. I, I have yeah. a weak spot for any time I see a really amazing Milo cosplayer, mm -hmm. though it's not super hard to cosplay as Milo because comfy sweater and. Riding pants, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think, I mean, I, I think we're safe to say, with the exception of those few couple of things, that if if you're watching it for the first time now, that you might go, mm, okay. But I think, you know, I'm not sure many people are watching it now and not. I, th I you know, I think Disney is one of those things that people watch with nostalgia goggles, even things they haven't seen. Yeah. Um, Hocus Pocus might be the exception because I've, I've shown it to a lot of friends recently and I go, now, keep in mind, this is a bad movie, but we love it. And they go, okay, because it's pretty bad. And I go, but we love it. And they go, but we love it. I was like, okay, you have uh -huh. to like Bette Midler. Ha! No, I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things, but I think in the grand microcosm of like of what we've seen of Disney stuff, this is... It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's doing okay. Yeah. Um, but no, Song Sarah, of the South, it I is definitely you know, not. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, we're talking live action. And, you know, you brought up Frozen on Broadway, and I talked mm -hmm. about Aladdin on Broadway. And, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, everybody's seen Lion King at this point. They've seen every tour or not, because I mm -hmm. still know a lot of people that have not seen it. Um, but, you know, one of the first times we, we hung out, you mentioned this really great idea of uh, an Atlantis musical. Why don't you, check, why don't you take our uh, listeners at home through oh. that just a little bit? Because I love that idea. I love it. So, uh, I, I rewatch Atlantis at least once a year, because it's my favorite. Uh, and I've been trying to sell my best friends from high school and middle school and elementary school on it forever and they're not, not quite sold yet uh but in one of those rewatches at a point in my life where I knew that I wanted to do theater for the rest of my life possibly professionally and that it wasn't just gonna be acting that I wanted to have a hand in more production mm -hmm. roles I looked at it with mm -hmm. a more theater crit eye and I realized that this has all the makings of a phenomenal Broadway piece. Musical? Movie? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, musical or play, I'm not sure. But it has all the makings 
of Broadway. And at a time right now, especially when we are engaging in more fantastical but grounded pieces like Hadestown, mm-hmm. uh, there is room for it on Broadway. So, uh, so Disney, you can mm-hmm. give me a call. But um, I have a dream that someday I will either direct or do concept design on Atlantis on Broadway. And I have three main stipulations. One of them is that they cast our dear friend. Can we say his name on air? Is that not a thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah so they cast our dear friend Sean Orman as Milo Thatch. Oh, God bless. God He's been God my Milo Thatch ever since I first met him. He has been my Milo Thatch. Uh, that Arkita is Nicole Scherzinger, because I don't know anyone else who could believably be 8,000 years old and still look 18. I don't believe yes. anyone. And she has the training. Yes. She has the training. She has... So- she has a beautiful Carnegie Mellon musical theater training. She has the stamina for eight shows a week. And we know from her Pussycat Dolls phase that she is all girl power and all power. Is she thick? Yeah. Um, but like, uh, okay, she'd gonna, look great want, in that outfit. I need everybody to pause right now, and you're going to go over to YouTube, mm-hmm. and you're, you well, one, just listen to all her, her Pussycat Doll stuff. It's great. They're all bops. Um, they're going on tour mm-hmm. this year. But they need to watch mm-hmm. her and Eden Espina, or her and Tracy Toms to Take Me or Leave Me from Rent from the Hollywood Bubble. They then need to listen mm-hmm. to her Don't Cry For Me Argentina yes. from Angel Lloyd Webber's private birthday party, where she sings it in the white dress. Her memory from Cats is transcendent. She's just a phenomenal. I'm holding out mm-hmm. that she'll play Alphabet in the Wicked movie. Hands down. I want it. It needs to happen. Please. I want to hear her define gravity. Please. I just... Please. Really I live for her Evita. Anybody that's not Leah Michelle. Oh, her Evita's mm-hmm. so good. I would love to see her play Evita. I mean, she's just... Oh, You've heard her sing kids. Don't Cry okay. For Me Argentina, right? Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, oh. that's why I want everybody to pause the show right now and go listen to it. It's so good. It's... Uh, we'll wait for you. Oh, it's so we'll good. wait for you to come back. No, right, right here. We'll wait... <laughs> Are you back? Okay, great. Okay, oh, good. we can keep going now. But yeah. But the last thing that I need in whatever I am concept designing or directing is that beautiful, beautiful set of, of machine fish, the Leviathan, the pods, all of it. I need it to be done by uh, Handspring Puppet Company, the people who did Warhorse. I need it. Yeah. I need it. Yeah. And I need the puppeteers that were on Warhorse to operate those things. I don't want any strings on any of the pods. I don't want any strings on the Leviathan. I want all of that to be practical, and I want it to be done by the Warhorse puppet people. It'd be delightful. The budget It'd would be, be so insane, beautiful. but I want it. I mean, what what Broadway budget isn't insane? Because we all know the average ticket price would be $200 anyway. Mm-hmm. I was just in New York, and I was so disgusted by how I couldn't afford to see anything. Right. Uh, so I didn't see... I saw one musical, and mm-hmm. then I saw Place, because that's what I wanted to see. Sorry, friend. <laughs> but uh, I, did, I mean, I did see Frozen. Yeah. You know, we're playing into the Broadway. Yeah. You know. yeah. Uh, I'll leave that review to another time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, <laughs> I'd love you know, to hear your I thoughts agree. on Hugo. I, but for another time. Uh, 
I, uh, okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's something. Um, everyone should go see it. It's touring nationally. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason than for the Let It Go Quick Change, which uh. is literal theater magic, mm-hmm. and for Oaken's Song at the Top of Act 2. There's the two reasons. Oh, oh and the Sven Puppet. Mm-hmm. The Sven Puppet. Sven also Puppet's why gorgeous. you go see the show. But, um, you know, also could just because it's cute. Go, go mm-hmm. support live theater. Um but yeah, no, it's I I think it'd be really cool and I would love to see Disney take a risk like they did with Peter and the Starcatcher mm-hmm. to tell a non traditional story because what could be really cool is to do kind of a a high combined like cursed child and Peter and the Starcatcher somewhere in the middle to tell the story. And Percy Jackson's um, coming to Broadway right now, so there's some obviously p- producers think there's a market yeah. for it. Yeah, it just left. It just left oh. Broadway, but it's going oh my god, tour. I have been it was, asleep. It's been on tour. It's been on. No, you're good. It's been on tour for a year, <laughs> a year, two years, and then they figured bring it to Broadway because there's an empty house for you know the summer, and then they extended. So it's a fun show, but yeah, like mm-hmm. you can do this kind of thing and make it work. I mean, Cursed Child has arguably the worst script I've ever read in my life, but that magic is brilliant. Yeah. You know, that the tech alone is why you yeah. see that show. You don't you don't go for time traveling fan fiction. Sorry, friends. Um, but, uh, you know, it's still cool. Everybody out there who could see Curse of Child, go see Curse of Child. Support support live commercial theater because live commercial theater also supports your local regional theaters and it gets butts in your seats at your community theaters. So mm-hmm. go support local theater. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, I think it stacks up pretty well. Um, arguably, out of all of the um, live-action announcements that have been announced, this is one of the only ones I'm super excited about. Until they mm-hmm. want to announce an Aristocats, then I'm here for it. Give, oh, give, give we me, need some space. Give me a, we need some space well, between, between us cats. and yes. CG Cats. <laughs> we need space. <laughs> But Judy Dench's hand needs space. I think if they did it like they did Lady and the Tramp or they did Jungle Book, it'd be really cute. And I love the Aristocats, but mm-hmm. I agree with you. So yeah. Andrew Lloyd has taken my love. Okay, really, I will always love Cats the Musical. It's garbage, but here we are. I mean, I love Starlight Express. I'm not allowed to talk about what is good and is bad with musical theater because I like the train show. <laughs> so uh, shout out to my friend Oz who who rekindled my love for the train show. Um, hey, yes, Oz. friends, if you don't know, <laughs> if you don't know musical theater, friends, uh, Sir Andrew Lloyd, who's Phantom <sighs> Jesus Christ Superstar <sighs> Cats, has a musical about sentient trains and a train race called Starlight. Starlight Express. It's currently running at the Starlight Theater in Germany. Everyone should go see it if you can. It is prolific. It's insane and wonderful. And it all started as a Thomas the Tank Engine musical that the Thomas people went, no, we're good. Uh, And then became Starlight Express. Um, Yeah, when when you're done with the episode, pull over. Or when you get home, go look up at the trailers, because it's wild. Uh, but yeah. yeah, any, Sarah, any other, any other thoughts while we're closing up about Atlantis? Uh, just that Disney needs to throw a whole bunch of money in a contract at me. 
I mean, I've been screaming that into the void for a year, so uh, I agree. <laughs> I think Disney should start excavating, excavating some young, bold talent uh, outside of the Imagineering field, because uh, I, I got some ideas for them. Mm-hmm. But here we are. Here and we my, are, so. my great hope in this new, bold and bright future for Atlantis with this on the horizon and all these rumored casting choices. And while mm-hmm. she's not Nicole Scherzinger, I would be okay with Zendaya showing up for for Kita across co- Tom Holland. Yeah. I, it, she's That's no Nicole different. Scherzinger, she, but no, she's it great. wouldn't be tragic. I give her a break. I, yeah. I would like to see someone a little bit older than her play Kita. Like someone... Someone in in their late twenties, mm-hmm. maybe early thirties, who still someone who could believably be eight thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, but also yeah. someone who could believably. I mean, Lupita Nyong'o obviously comes to mind. Um, yes, but you know she's in a lot of Disney. Pro- you know, maybe there's an unknown. I like to think that maybe someone's yeah. out there listening right now who is the perfect Kita, and I say, girl, go get your dreams. Let's make you yeah. Kita. Um, yeah. Because, you know, while I, I'm screaming for diversity, maybe seeing the same six diverse faces is not what I mean by diversity. Uh-huh. Um, so um, I will, though, say she's used a lot, but Charlize Theron as Halga would be perfect. Yes. Absolutely. And, um, and, and he plays a good bad guy, and it would be predictable. But I think from... Um, Avatar. Oh, uh, uh, where's his name? It's right, yes. here. It's, right here. it's right here. Stephen Lang as Rorik, Ooh. who played the, the kind of evil colonel in Avatar. It's essentially the same uh-huh. character, but yeah. he's so wonderful. I think he'd be great. And he's the right age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I think it'd be lovely. But um, Avatar, to come back to that, I think that that a future with a live action looks bright because Avatar gave us the CG capabilities and the fantastical CG capabilities to really do justice to the difference between the natural light in our environment Mm -hmm. versus the artificial light of the expedition team and the, the Mm -hmm. supernatural light of the heart of the, um, the heart of Atlantis so that you get the, the symbolism of the, the moral value of the artificial electric light coming in to steal everything versus the artificial, but naturally occurring light. It's just, it's, I think that this is the right time for a live action. And I think that they could do it a lot of justice. And I think that we need to hear those kernels of truth that we are stronger together and that there are some things that just cannot be disposed of with brute force more than ever. I think that this is the time. Well, and as we're, as we're trying to rip each other apart, I know at, you know, I'm at university of Florida right now and at a Mm -hmm. lot of institutions, we're having that conversation of when we're teaching students, the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation and how we, we as designers and we as artists who are, it's our job to research. It's our jobs to do the visual dramaturgy. How do we embrace and lovingly use a culture? Well, and that's to sit down and talk to them and learn from them. And it's not to just go, oh, this is what I learned about your culture. It's to use all those resources. And if we're sitting down and talking to each other on a fair playing field, that's, you know, when we're, letting the playing field be fair because we're the ones with the privilege to bring that to the the playing field. Like mm-hmm. you're 
that's what we need to do. And so, you know, I think it's when we're learning from each other instead of, because the internet makes it really easy to think we know all these things. Like, y'all, y'all think I know a lot of these things, but it's really thanks to Wikipedia. This is like my favorite murder, but for Disney. <laughs> Shout out to those amazing women on my, on my yes. favorite murder. I just found them. They are so wonderful. Those and the girls at Crime Junkie. Holy crap. Delightful. I feel like true crime should only be presented by really bold and wonderful women. Mm-hmm. Um, love to have them on the show. If y'all are listening. <laughs> um, mm. No, you're not. But, you know, it's it's just that, <laughs> that idea that, like, we need to learn from each other instead of just trying to beat the shit out of each other. So I think, yeah. ooh, take a little Milo Thatcher and a little Kita at the end of the day away. Um, but, uh, Sarah, is there anything you've got coming up that you'd like to plug? Um, or, um, honestly, if anybody's traveling to New York and you want to really interesting tour that's not touristy y'all need to come take a tour from sarah because let me tell you, you even just following her on social media i'm learning stuff i lived in new york for new york proper for five years i've lived in new york state for like 10 or 11 mm-hmm. before i moved to florida and i'm learning stuff from you that i've literally never heard from anybody else so like sarah maybe where can everybody find you online or uh, book you for a tour Actually, you can find me at saralyons.net, S-A-R-A-L-Y-O-N-S dot N-E-T. Uh, but I am currently working with a company where I am not going to say their name because there's we're okay. going through a rebranding period. But oh, if you perfect. go to NewYorkTour1.com, you will find that company, brand to be announced when we finally figure out everything about that. Um and I, I am currently working with them. I am their senior trainer and uh, and quality control personnel for the neighborhood tours that they give. Uh, you can also find me at Sarah Lyons1993, spelled the same way as my uh, website on Instagram. Um, and uh, if you also look up the underscore cabaret, you will find me. Anyone who's popping into the New York area, I spent a lot of time working with a cranky cabaret developing uh, n- like songs we all know, because there are only so many cranky songs that young people looking to go to Broadway know. <laughs> oh my God! If I hear "To Excess" one more time, I might explode. But uh, I spent three years with that company, working with an amazing group of people, and uh, Cranky Cabaret, unfortunately. Um, either temporarily or maybe maybe permanently doesn't exist. The producers have gone on to other projects. Um, But in the wake of that, I have created my own newcomer cabaret, and each show explores a new theme. We've got one coming up in February, the 21st and 22nd. Uh, It's all about commitment, so relationships of all kinds. Um, And it's going to be a lot of fun. We're currently working on casting for that. Uh, It's gonna be a good time and if anyone listening is a performer and is gonna be in the new york area for any length of time uh you can find us at underscore cabaret spelled exactly like it sounds at gmail.com and we'd love to have you so that's what's cooking now uh eventually i'm hoping to have some of the plays i've written back up on their feet and not just something that i have on a resume and i'll let you know when that happens Perfect. Well, Sarah, thanks so much. It's been a ball. Likewise. Always a pleasure hearing from you, hon. Now, some of you have been asking, Natty, 
what happened to the show's format? And I got a very simple explanation for you guys, grad school. We've had a little backup in our slog of episodes, but I guarantee Doe Whip and Dreams will be back to you just as you love it soon. But I didn't want to take away any of our amazing guest interviews, so I'm going to go back and I'm going to re-edit our episodes soon and put back in those history sections. But until then, be a sleuth. Give me a cyber sleuth. Find some amazing things that we forgot today in the episodes. Also, reach out to us at doleupanddreamspod.com if you're interested in becoming uh, a researcher or an editor for the show. I'm looking to expand the family with paid positions. That's right, paid positions. So reach out to us soon if you're interested in becoming a researcher or an editor for Dole Whips and Dreams. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Dope and Dreams podcast. Thank you from everyone here at the show for keeping us on the charts every week in America, the UK, and Australia. Things you can do to help us out. Check out our Patreon where only $2 a month can help fund the show. Leave us five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, don't forget about the social on February 8th at the Magic Kingdom and put in your calendars now for March 14th and 15th in Gainesville, Florida. Do up and dreams live. It's still a mystery of the show we're doing, so you'll have to come, but there'll be prizes. We'll be debuting merch, and it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. Now, until next time, dreamers, may your days be filled with dull whips and dreams.